Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the severity of an attack like the one in London on Sunday evening is felt by many communities right across the country. We're going to talk with Javed Mirza, president of the Muslim Association of Hamilton, to get his take on that and how his community is responding. A verdict has been reached in the court case of two Hamilton paramedics charged in the death of Yosef Al-Hasnawi. The president of the union representing the paramedics will join us to talk about his perspective on the court's decision and the judge's decision. And politicians love to talk, but tend to drag their feet when it comes to action on controversial issues. Quebec's Bill 21 is a perfect example. If politicians really want to fight Islamophobia, why don't they start there? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know about the tragedy that occurred on Sunday in London. And uh, last night there was a, a memorial service uh, that was held, of course, at the mosque on Oxford Street in uh, London, uh, attended by thousands, of course. Uh, and again, uh, politicians were there uh, saying all the right things they were supposed to say. But I guess the thing, the, the overwhelming theme, I guess, of this whole thing was we're dealing with hate. We're dealing with crimes of hate. And uh, it, it's going on and on and on. And it's... Uh, it's not just in London, sadly. It's happening in cities all over North America, and it's a, it's a problem that we need to address. And I know that a number of officials talked about that last night. Uh, to join us uh, in the conversation about this, uh, please to welcome back to the program our good friend Javid Mirza, the president of the Muslim Association of Hamilton. Uh, Javid, uh, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, good morning, Bill. How are you? Uh, I'm upset by this. I, you know, I had this sense of deja vu as I was watching uh, the the, uh, the ceremonies from uh, from the mosque yesterday uh, of you and me 20 years ago having this very similar conversation after the uh, attempt on the, the, to set a fire in your mosque, of course, and uh, the burning of this uh, Hindu Samaj temple. As a result, that was supposedly the reaction to somebody's uh, uh, bent way of trying to exact their sense of justice, I guess, after the 9-11 attacks. But you remember we had a, a, a big town hall with uh, people from all faiths uh, at the mosque, and uh, I had the honor of, of being the moderator for that. And we, we talked at that time, didn't we, about about ending hate and about bringing together and about listening to people. Well, here we are 20 years later, Javid. <laughs> have, we, have we moved the yardsticks at all? I am not so sure, Bill. I, I thought we achieved a great deal, especially in Hamilton, then... Then the last three, four, five years, you see what happened in, in Quebec, and then what happened uh, at the mosque in uh, Toronto last year, and then now this one. It's just it's incredibly sad, you know, a family that loses not just one, two, three, but like three generations. Mm-hmm. A nine-year-old kid is just, uh, you know, an orphan. No mother, no father, no sister. It is such a sad state of affairs that's going on. We, as, as a, I think as a society, Islamophobia uh, is real. I never realized the fact until uh, maybe the last five, ten years. Islamophobia is real, and I think the government has to come up, and there has to be an action plan, no more just coming up and saying our condolences to the sympathies in this. I think we really have to have some kind of legislation in place. Like, well, you know, the government did a great job when it came to ISIS and all the things that they were doing. And you know, indoctrinating little young kids. And this is the same stuff with white supremacy. This is the same stuff with all these hate groups that are gone wild on on the internet and that are saying and spewing all sorts of garbage. And then these these young people that have nothing going on, they're sitting at home and just you know becoming uh, keyboard warriors and putting up all kinds of hate and garbage. Before people could not do that. People, I remember when I was a young person, nobody would come out and say something. You know, if somebody said something. Everybody would look at them and they'd be sort of scared. But now on the Internet, they can say, do whatever, and uh, they're just getting brainwashed. This is where the problem is. I really believe that from this incident, at least, we need to have some legislation in place. So, you know, these people are held accountable. But when that is being proposed, uh, all of a sudden, these these words that we've heard over the last uh, 48 hours or so uh, seem to go into the background. And these people, they, they don't seem to want to take a stand on issues like this. And we can talk about the the, the you know the anti hijab legislation uh, and uh, that's going on in Quebec right now, the Bill C21, and a number of issues like that, where the elected officials, Javid, are talking the talk, but they're not backing it up. You know, it's true. If you go back, Bill, you know, even when uh, Mr. Harper was a prime minister, he had a snitch line for Muslims. I mean, it's incredible that, you know, we let him get away. Well, at least we didn't let him get away because he lost the election the next time around. But there are people, elected officials, that say craziest things in the world. And, 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 
and it gives uh, you know sort of a right to people that are insane to come out and do and say stupid things and, and do stupid things. Like this guy from this morning when I was listening to the radio, he was smiling when he got arrested. Mm-hmm. Like he did something, you know, uh, something incredibly good by sending a whole family. You know, we have real issues here locally. Like I've got so many people from my community have called me, especially people that wear, you know, uh, scarves and stuff and, and have hijabs on. The women are asking, are you okay to go outside? Like this is summer. Not just summer, winter, regardless. People, you know, want to take a walk and people are sort of nervous of taking a walk. What if some, some person does the same thing? It's really touching at home. And it's really what? sad that this is going on in 2011 in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, and we have, uh, I, I, I just, words can't express my sorrow and sadness of what's going on here. You've seen some of the comments also on social media, Javid, that suggest, like, it, you know, this is sad and tragic, but it's an isolated incident. Uh, you've lived here for many, many years. Uh, you've, you've been a leader uh, in, the, in the Muslim community. Is this an isolated incident, or is, is this the sort of racism, overt racism, uh, that many people in, in, in your community, in the Muslim community, are facing on a, on a regular basis? There are things that are going on. If you look at studies, there's a lot of hate stuff going on like you know might be minor stuff like just like what the jewish community deals with in regards to Mm anti-semitism the same thing you know somebody put graffiti somebody said this somebody called you uh you know uh, go back to where you came from these kind of things are very common but uh and then these are the kind of things that start and people don't stop and uh, you know if you're standing there and you hear somebody saying something regardless you're at home or you're outside you need to you know if you're a decent human being, you need to stop. You need to tell this person, whoever that is, he or she, stop. You can't say stuff like that. That's not good. We can make the change. This guy was only 20 years old. God only knows how he got indoctrinated into this kind of garbage and, and where he came up with. I mean, I, people have a right not to like somebody. That's fine. But you don't have a right to hurt somebody. That's absolutely wrong. And that's where this is coming down to. I don't know, we call all these other people, you know, especially all these people with ISIS and everything, we'll call them barbaric and we're doing this. What is the difference? I don't see any difference with these people, what they're doing here and what they've done over there. It is just totally bizarre that we're actually going through this in 2011. And I really believe that we had done so much great deal of work here in Hamilton, especially Bill, and and with all the Hindu Samaj thing and at at the mosque and and all the hate, hate, you know, things that were going on here. But every time when something like this happened, you, you've gone back into the 20 steps, and you don't know what else is going on because you can't tell. I mean, this guy in a car, in a car. Like, uh, you know, our local chief, uh, uh, Frank, contacted me the other day in regards to when this happened. Listen, we're going to put extra security at your mosque. And I said to him, I said, I don't think we're worried about the mosque. If somebody's going to come to the mosque, God forbid, maybe he or, he or she will kill a couple of us. But at least there would be people there, and we'll be able to take care of that person. And there's no way in Gaza that person will walk away from there alive. There's no way. But I'm, my concern is people that are walking on the street. So I told the chief, I said, make sure, please, people that are walking on the street, you know, that your officers that are driving around just to pay attention because you don't know what's going on. Like, these people were just walking on a sidewalk, and the guy went on a sidewalk and killed them. This is the scary part, Bill. You just don't know. If somebody's yeah. calling me something, I, I can understand, I know how to deal with it, how not to deal with it. But when you don't know and out of nowhere somebody comes, it's like mass shootings in the U.S., what's the difference? Same thing, people have no idea. Innocent people are walking around, all of a sudden somebody pulls out a gun and starts shooting. And I think in our country, if we didn't have uh, the legislation, some of the legislation against guns, we were had all kinds of issues too. There's a lot of closet people. Well, we do have we do have legislation like that, Javid, and we still have yeah, the, yeah, the tragedy in Quebec, of course. We don't have all these issues as, as severe as in the United States. I mean, a couple of days ago, some of my friends were saying, you know, Javid, Trump is next door. But I said to them, I said, I don't, this really had nothing, you know, Trump has just happened to be there at that time. But I said, our own government, when, when Harper was there, he sided with this, you know, uh, snitch line, basically telling people that it's okay to snitch on Muslims, they're foreign or they're something else. And when, when an elected official can say something like that, especially being the prime minister of, Can- uh, of our country, then what do you think? All these closet people, they give us incentives. It's like what Trump did on the other side, gave people incentives. And now uh, every wacko is out there doing whatever they can. And this is exactly what's going on here. We just don't know how many more people are involved or how many more people are doing this. 
you know, they were saying that they had not found any profile or anything about this guy on the internet and everything. But I bet you in the dark net, he's got everything because all these guys have, you know, hidden doing something. I, I just don't, I have a son. Yeah, my youngest son is 21. I was looking at him and he's asking me, Daddy, like, how? I, I, I just don't have any words. I just don't know how to say how. I don't have well, the answer for how. Javid, that's the healing that you have talked about for many, many years, the healing that so many elected leaders talked about. That has to begin. There has to be a plan. But before that can happen and before we can we can see a groundswell of support for something like that, there has to be an acknowledgement uh, that we have a problem here and that these are, you know, okay, this, not every Muslim family that goes for a walk is going to get run down. I get that. But I mean, one is one too many. Uh, and and we have situations of that right now. We have to understand that there is hate out there. And I know that a couple of weeks ago, when the prime minister talked about racism, and and he was he was chided by the opposition parties. Canada is not a racist country. Well, there's an element of racism in this country uh, yeah, well, against against the, indigenous people, against yeah, Muslims, against blacks. Family, yeah, indigenous people. What they've gone through and what they're going through every day. You can ask the black community. You can ask the Jewish community. You can ask us. I mean, this is going on. This is real, it, and it's there. It's. Just, I mean, we need to acknowledge the fact that hey, you know, we're not. I, I'm so proud of our country. I mean, you know, Bill, you know, my business takes me all over the world. So I've had calls in the last several days from Europe, from the Middle East, from Africa. You name it. Every customer that I have calling me, what happened in your country? What happened in your country? And they were just like people are shocked because they don't anticipate something like this happening in our in our country, and. Uh, you know, it just floors you when you see something like this. People assume this can only happen in America or this can only happen somewhere else, but not here. But it's actually happened in the last six years, seven years. It's happened three times at minimum where people have died. I don't even know how many more other times it's happening without, uh, you know, somebody losing life. But these are, this is real. I think people have to stand up and say, hey, listen, this needs to be stopped. That's the only way this is going to end. Like, I don't know what people are teaching at their homes. I, I, I just don't get it. Susan Delacourt from the Star, Toronto Star, is going to join us a little bit later on in her piece today. She writes uh, a, 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 an anecdote here that I, I think kind of underscores what you're saying here, Javid. Uh, she talked to uh, Jeff Bennett. Now, Jeff Bennett ran for the uh, Conservative Party in the 2014 election. Yeah, I saw his piece. Uh, yeah, and you know all about this then, of course. Uh, he actually replaced a, a Muslim candidate, uh, Ali That's Shabar. And he said, and he said, look at, he says, this under, you need to understand where this is coming from. When he replaced the, the Muslim candidate, he said he got all kinds of feedback and phone calls saying, thank God you're running, you're white and you speak English. And, and I don't mean one or two. He said it was disgusting, the sort of stuff that he heard as a response to that. And he says that goes on, and that was in London. That goes on in, in cities right across this country right now. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting everybody is racist. I'm saying there are elements like this, and we can't just put our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. You know, I ran for the Liberal Party provincially here seven years ago now. When I was canvassing, you know, people would not say it to me on my face, but other people would tell me or somebody would call me and say, hey, listen, they're, you know, they're going to work for the other person. Only reason because she happened to be a, not a Muslim. I mean, this, I've, I've seen it, I've experienced it, I've heard it. And uh, this is not what he wrote down when I read his uh, his thing yesterday, somebody sent me one of my boyfriends sent me the piece uh, a couple of days ago. I was reading it. It's really what happened here with me. I mean, this is, you know, and I, uh, I don't know. It's just such terrible affairs. Well, it's, really hard, it's heartbreaking. How are your people feeling? How is your community feeling right now? People are very nervous. People are very can understand, especially people, you know, that wear hijab, people that, you know, quote-unquote, look like Muslim, uh, you know, walking around, whatever, they're really concerned. People are concerned about, I don't, I don't know if the men are worried as much, but they're worried about their families, you know, you're walking down with your child and down the street or something, and God forbid something. I'm not saying that this is the stuff that's going to happen every day or everywhere, but, you know, if you have a family, you start thinking about things. So you wonder how. You know, you live in you live in, you think you're living in an incredibly safe environment and safe place. Like people have been coming to Canada for hundreds of years and they're coming here to better their lives, to better their children for a better future for their kids. Look at this family. They lost their daughter. They lost, you know, the grandmother, the mother and the father. Now this little nine-year-old is, is an orphan. This is the gift he got for coming here, I suppose. I'm not so sure. It's really sad that we actually are 
not speaking about stuff like that. Well, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, words are one thing. Uh, words matter, but uh, actions speak louder than words, as the cliche goes. And we're looking for some action. Uh, just about everybody who spoke at that meeting last night with the prime minister, uh, the opposition leaders, uh, and everyone else talked about we have to do something, we have to change. Well, now this is the call to action to do something. Javid, let's uh, stay in touch. I'm so glad you had some top Bill, opportunities to, uh, to talk. I just wanted to send in. We, there's, a, there's a thing tonight. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, tonight at um, Bayfront Park at about okay. A prayer visual. If people wish to come, please do so. Just wear your mask and keep your social distance. And there's one on Saturday from all the Muslim uh, mosques in the city. We're having one at City Hall between 1 and 2 p.m. People are more than welcome to come. Excellent. And, uh, just a prayer visual so we can pray for this family. Javid, well, thanks as always for this, and thank you for, thanks, uh, for spending some time it. with us. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two Hamilton paramedics charged with failing to provide the necessaries of life following the 2017 death of Yosef Al-Hasawi have been found guilty. Justice Harrison Errol made the decision in a judge-only trial after hearing 32 days of testimony from witnesses and experts about uh, the, well, the incidents and the occurrences that happened. And it was a, a terrible tragedy in so many different ways. Uh, the question, of course, was the conduct of two of the paramedics, Steve Snively and Christopher Marchand, who treated the 19-year-old on the night of December 2nd, 2017, uh, after he was shot during an altercation at Sanford Avenue at Main Street at the Variety Store there. Joining us to talk about uh, what's going forward and, and and what happened, of course, about the trial itself is Mario Pastorero. Mario, of course, is the president of OPSU Local 256. Uh, Mario, thank you for joining us on a very, very difficult time for just about everybody involved in this. Good morning, and thank you for having me on, Bill. It's, uh, it was gut-wrenching the day after we heard about this news uh, as we talked to some of the people that were there and saw some of the events of that night. Walk us through your feelings as, as, as you looked at what was going on here and, and found some of the evidence of what went on. And uh, You've been doing this for a long, long time, Mario, and, and there, there was an awful uh, feeling by an awful lot of people here that uh, just about everybody on the scene there seemed to drop the ball. So first and foremost, um, as you can probably appreciate, the, the litigation is not quite concluded in this case. Exactly. Sentencing, sentencing is scheduled to occur on October 25th and 26th. Um, so we want to respect the court, pro the court process and obviously uh, the, the judges um, overseeing the case and not comment on some of his comments, uh, his rationale, and some of the specific details. There's also other ongoing litigation that I'm mindful of, and I'll try to stay within the lane of providing some general comments, Bill, perhaps speak about some take-home points and maybe the impact it's had on our service. Uh, but it's safe to say, and to your point, this is and was a sad and tragic event. Um, don't believe any verdict, any sentence, any outcome can undo the tragedy for the El Hasnawi family. Uh, so we feel for them. Um, having said that, uh, this is a, a definitely a, a negative event as it pertains to our paramedic service and how perhaps paramedics may be viewed. And I'm here to say that this is not the norm. Um, this event occurred and unfolded for a number of reasons, and those reasons were explained within the courtroom. I'm not going to attempt to relitigate them. Uh, but our paramedics respond to approximately 70,000 calls for assistance on an annual basis. Our job is very difficult. We're tasked with making multiple critical decisions rapidly and simultaneously under very difficult circumstances. Often there's our rate bystanders or family members. There's often conflicting and confusing information in history, and it makes decision-making difficult. Um, I don't want to lose sight of the fact, as I said, that this is, in our view, an anomaly. Uh, I think we have the respect of the public and the good work that we do and we continue to do in the city of Hamilton as paramedics, Bill. Mario, I, I just I, I feel the same as you. I mean, I, I understand that the sentencing still has to go, so the process, you're absolutely right, is not totally complete yet, and that's not going to be uh, for a number of months now. Uh, but I know you did make some comments after the verdict came out yesterday, and I, I just want to get some clarity on some of these things. And, and 
you and I have had conversations about, about paramedics, about the work that they have to do and, and that they do do. And, and I, you know that I've always had a great deal of faith and, and respect for them. But, I mean, let's face it, you people save lives on a daily basis. And, and that can't be forgotten in a situation like this. But the, the, the events as, as they were described during these 32 days of the trial, did they to you show or expose shortcomings in the training of, of people that go into this field? Well, I think if we're going to glean any value from a negative event such as this, a tragic event, you know, we have to look at the existing training and standards and not just say these are the standards you should follow them. You didn't follow them, therefore you're going to be disciplined, terminated, or in this case, possibly imprisoned. I think you have to look at, at least from a contemporary perspective, is look at paramedic clinical decision-making. You know, some of the, the rationality and the biases that exist. And that came through in the trial. And, you know, I'll tell you, I had the privilege of sitting through every moment of those 32 days physically in the courtroom. So I heard all of the evidence in its totality um, and how it was weighed by the judge. But I, I think administrators, EMS administrators, have to recognize that perhaps we should be looking at some of the science as it pertains to the judgments paramedics make that pertain to assessment, treatment, and transport decisions. And this is especially true now as the diagnostics and interventions paramedics administer become more complex and the scope of practice continues to evolve and expand. So it's easy to say standards were not followed, but I think we have to try to gain some value from an educational perspective to ensure that this doesn't happen again. This type of event is not repeated. As we also know, this type of charge is the first of its kind in North America. Mm -hmm. So that itself has sent a bit of a chill through the paramedic profession and the broader healthcare sector, including doctors and nurses. And what also came out within the testimony, and, and actually even surprised me, Bill, that diagnostic failure, misdiagnosis, is the third leading cause of death in North America after heart disease and cancer. So to reemphasize my point, it's time that we look at some of the science and what goes into thinking and, and the biases and the like in order to prevent this from occurring. That was not only presented by the defense witness, Dr. Crosskey, who, by the way, trained the McMaster and was an ER physician and is an expert in the field. It was reiterated by the attending physician from St. Joe's, who acknowledged that in the ER, physicians receive training to combat that very bias of diagnostic uh, clinical decision-making that's inconsistent with what the outcome eventually is. So if it applies to emergency room physicians, we think at a minimum it should also extend to paramedics. So that's one of the areas that we'll be discussing with our senior management. We're hoping that the profession evolves that in a manner that looks at the science and looks at some of these biases and rationale for us making the decisions that we do, Bill. So with that in mind, what are the possibilities of something like that being uh, uh, the offshoot of this? I mean, is there a possibility now that there is going to be an analysis of, of exactly how your members are being trained so they can be ready for this and be trained for uh, the, the twists and turns? As you say, probably no two calls are the same on any given week or, or night, for that matter, for a crew. Uh, and and th as you said, through the course of the trial, uh, there were clearly some, some areas of, of the, the work that was done there uh, that came under question. Some of the decision-making came under question. Uh, we should also mention, by the way, for those who may not be totally familiar with this case, uh, there's also uh, some action against a couple of the police officers that were there, too. There was a complaint lodged against them, and that process is unfolding, too. Uh, so we have to be rather generic, I guess, in some of our comments here until uh, we get all of these legal issues uh, ironed out, and that's going to take quite some time. But uh, who's going to learn from this? I mean, you, you've already pointed out that there may be some shortcomings in training like that, uh, and, and that's something that I think everybody has to look at and, and say, okay, can we do a better job? Is the process in place? Do your people have all the tools, both psychologically and physically, uh, to be able to do these, these, these jobs, especially given the circumstances of, of that particular night? The science mandates that we do. 
So we must proceed along that basis if we're to gain any value from this tragic event. And this is not a matter of pseudoscience. It's not finding excuses for decisions that were made. It's looking at the science that speaks to the unconscious biases that often do occur. And that was reiterated by the attending physician at St. Joe's, Dr. Healy, who actually stated that. That's part of the record. Along with Dr. Cross Carey, who's a preeminent expert in that field from New Brunswick, um, we, we can't ignore that. Uh, and, and again, these are meant to be uh, opportunities to advance our profession in a scientific manner and continue to learn from um, the actions or the inactions that paramedics and first responders um, abide by or, or proceed to act upon. And it's alive and well within the physician group that they receive this type of training. Well, the third leading cause of death is medical misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard stat to accept and surprised even myself. But if that is the case, then there's a recognition that decisions that ought to be made are not being made, and we need to look at the science behind it. So, I mean, I'm a big proponent of education, and I think that's one area. Uh, and, and that's not to diminish, you know, the conduct uh, of the paramedics. And uh, listen, these are hard pills to swallow. The judge was clear that the paramedics' actions were a marked departure from the objective standard of care. That was his comment, Yeah. Uh, along with other comments. So we're not ducking that. We're now looking at, is there a reason why this call unfolded as it did. And I'll also tell you this, what this call revealed is the numerous frailties within the system, including the understaffing of dispatch. They weren't able to communicate things as, as quickly uh, or as properly as they should have. You know, obviously the, the, the police actions, they've all, been, they've all been stated. I'm not here to blame. Uh, this is a trial that involved two paramedics. They were the ones that carried the burden of this criminal charge. Um, we have very capable counsel, Jeff Manishin, who's on your show often, as, as yep. you're well aware, will review the decision. Um, we accept it and we respect the court process, and uh, you know we'll, we'll see what the next steps are, Bill. With that in mind, though, uh, as going forward, and we'll talk about that, and as I said, there's going to be plenty of time to talk about this after the, the sentencing is carried out, etc. We can get into some of the details and some of the minutiae of what came out as testimony in this. But how do you prepare uh, your teams, Mario, for this uh, like you say, there is the physical element to this. There's also the mental element of this as well. Uh, and you can train them all you want about how to do treat this wound or that wound or this particular injury. Uh, but how do you how do you address the idea of perceived bias, which I think is is the with the phrase that got used a couple of times during the trial here, that uh, n- not necessarily even by the paramedics, but by some of the other officials that were on the scene at that particular time, because there was apparently an exchange of information between this group and that group and, and the paramedics uh, that went on for quite some time, and, and which seemed to lead to, as you say, a misdiagnosis. Uh, I, where did the expertise come from? Where did the opinions come from? And how were those opinions filtered? I mean, that's a, those are very difficult questions, but I think they're very germane to this. The pervasive history from the time the calls came in, the 911 came in, was the reference to a pelican. That was continuously reinforced by the police, the fire, and numerous bystanders. So that obviously had an impact on the way the call unfolded. Now, you know, paramedics are trained to make independent assessments, independent of what they hear, but paramedics are not infallible. And we are all influenced to a degree by the pervasive information that comes at us, and we act in different ways. So I think we have to dig a little bit deeper beyond, well, these are the standards. Uh, You didn't follow the standard, therefore, you know, you're... You know, you, you erred, and that resulted in a, a negative outcome. And, and what I'm saying, I think we're trying to say is that there has to be something a little bit more deeper than that and why it happened. And 
hopefully prevent it from reoccurring. You know, I spoke about understaffing at CAC, which resulted in the communication of the actual call and some of the details being mishandled. Um, you know, police were on scene. They received information that they passed on to fire that also passed it on to our paramedics. And the calls then, and also the, the, some of the eyewitnesses. So th- that's what happened. At the end of the day, the judge was convinced that none of that mattered and the actions of the medics represented a marked departure from the objective standard of care of what a prudent and reasonable paramedic would have done under those circumstances. That's the criminal law. The decision on this particular case will probably drive precedence. I've had numerous calls from other health care providers that are somewhat concerned that the Pandora's box will now open as a result of this decision. Um, so that's something we're going to have to deal with. Uh, there may be an increase in these types of charges being leveled against caregivers. Can't say for sure, but uh, can only can only surmise that um, this type of charge being the first of its kind probably will not be the last. Mario, there's one element of this, and again, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but it had to do with with the wound itself. And as you say, there was it seemed like almost there was a debate going on at the scene about what caused the wound, etc. But as I was reading over some of the comments from from Justice Errol and and others who were involved in the testimony. If it was a penetrating wound, which is the phrase that was used, in other words, it, you know, there was there was a wound there. It wasn't just a bruise or anything. Does it much matter what projectile was used to get that to, to, to ask? Just as as I think the phrase you've used before is in a situation, an emergency situation, it's load and go. In other words, get the the victim onto a stretcher, into the ambulance, and over to the hospital. What I, I can't understand why there was even a debate about how this happened. The fact is, it did happen. It, it did. And some of the counters to that would be a pinprick is a penetrating wound as well. Do we go to a lead trauma center for a pinprick? Again, not trying to justify the decision-making. No, I understand. If we're going to peel back the onion, then let's, let's be clear. What appeared did not, was not consistent with the medic's knowledge of what a penetrating gun wound ought to look like. What was interesting is... The, uh, one of the witnesses, Dr. Crossberry, actually testified to the fact that he was shot by a pellet gun. In his butt, in his leg, apparently, he said. It stung, but it wasn't serious. One of the medics was also shot by a BB gun. In fact, one of the Crown witnesses that was first on scene that actually scolded some of the bystanders and the patient and said, what are you thinking? You could have really got shot. This is a rough neighborhood. So everybody assumed that it was superficial based on how it appeared, and thus that locked in that mindset that it was minor. Pelican denotes something relatively minor. As we know, in hindsight, when we can evaluate and analyze and critique, it was not minor. So those are some of the realities that medics are presented with. And again, we're not infallible. They were overtaken by the pervasive history that seemed to connect with minor, the visual observation of what looked like a very, very small wound and their experience in what a pellet gun does or doesn't do. What happens going forward now? Uh, as you say, this is going to have a ripple effect uh, through the entire industry. Uh, life goes on. You're going to be responding to calls today again, I'm, I'm sure, and, and going forward. How do your crews handle this? Well, I mean, I'm, they're going to handle it in, in a professional, as a professional manner as possible. You know, there's 70,000 calls for assistance, and, you know, the glowing patient satisfaction um, so surveys that you know our service receives from um, the experience that our patients have with our paramedics is is stellar. Um, you're sometimes judged by your lowest common denominator. This should not be it. Uh, paramedics will um, recover and continue to do the best they can, and you know abide by the standards that we do. Uh, but on occasion. We're not going to skirt the issue that sometimes 
assumptions and mistakes are made. We have to deal with them and find a way not to repeat them. And the best way to do that is to reinforcing existing standards in education and being knowledgeable enough and contemporary enough to look at some of the science that perhaps can also assist us in making better decisions. Well, lots of discussion going forward on this uh, very difficult time for everybody. Mario, thank you, as always, for taking some time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Have a good day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're listening to a lot of the politicians speaking, uh, I'm sure, from their hearts uh, last night about the, the terrible tragedy in London. Uh, it was not lost on a lot of us that, uh, well, you know, talk is one thing. What about action? What about actually taking a stand on some of these issues? Uh, which seems to be the theme of uh, the piece that Susan Delacourt wrote for the Toronto Star today. It's called, There's a Line That Justin Trudeau Won't Cross when it comes to fighting Islamophobia. Susan Delacourt, of course, is national columnist with the Toronto Star, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Susan, thank you so much. Glad you could join us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, this is so poignant, and I thought so timely as well, because I think we've been talking around this and maybe thinking around this as we watched uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, Mr. O'Toole, uh, Jagmeet Singh, and others uh, talking about this as well. And as you mentioned, if they really wanted to show uh, through their actions that uh, they believe the words that they're saying right now, there's, there's, a, uh, there's an obvious way for them to do that with this uh, Quebec legislation, isn't there? Yeah. I, you know, it's the elephant in the room whenever there's a discussion about, you know, um, whether it's freedom of expression in Canada or respecting religious diversity, there is this blot on our legal landscape in Canada, and it's called Bill 21. And in the province of Quebec, if you are a devout Muslim who believes in, uh, a, whose, whose religion demands that you, um, you wear the, um, the clothing or the accoutrement of it, then uh, you can't work in the public sector. Jagmeet Singh, uh, who's a Sikh, uh, could not wear his turban if he wanted to teach a school in Quebec. And uh, this, is, this has been, a, a, as I said, a blot on the landscape, and we do not hear any of the political leaders speaking up against it. And the only reason can be that nobody wants to offend uh, popular opinion in Quebec. Yeah, which is the as you mentioned in the piece today. I, I mean, they're reading the polls. All politicians read polls, and and sadly, and we, we've talked about this on the program in the past as well. Is 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 problematic and disgusting as as a lot of us feel about uh, Bill Twenty One right now, Susan. It seems to be favored by at least a small majority, if depending on which poll you read, of the people in Quebec. They think think this is a pretty good idea. Yeah, and you know, I I don't think let let's just say you know not slam a whole province here, it's not uh, just plain bigotry. It's not um, simple enough to call it that. It's called the secularism bill, and it, it also makes it wrong to wear a crucifix around your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not singling out any one particular religion. It is saying that church and state are separate in Quebec, and there shall be no public display of religion whatsoever. That being said... Um, we we sort of know what this is all about. The the irony of this, if I'm using the irony word correctly, is that Quebec is a minority within Canada and understands that you don't use majority opinion to settle questions of minorities. We That is a grand tradition in Canada that, that the tyranny of the majority is not supposed to decide minority rights. And here is a classic case of why that is a bad thing. Um, so, yes, I sat there yesterday listening to all these tributes in the house and i said when is one of them going to say that bill 21 has got to go well not yet uh no. and i know the i know the prime minister as you mentioned in the piece today the prime minister was asked about that and said look i've always been against it uh but he's the prime minister for heaven's sakes so, you know work, use the power of your office use the muscle of the office uh which he hasn't done and, and frankly as you point out in the piece no has anyone else no um no, every one of them, uh, there should have been footnotes to every speech. You know, um, the prime minister could use the federal government's power to intervene in the cases before the courts. To just say, in, in the opinion of the government of Canada, what is going on in Quebec there is wrong. That would be a strong and forceful thing to say. And I've got lots of mail today from people who remember his dad saying, this is the kind of thing a Pierre Trudeau would have done. That may be exactly why Justin Trudeau won't do it. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. 
Um, Aaron O'Toole. This is a man whose party campaigned uh, with dog whistle politics in 2015 about barbaric cultural practices, a hotline to report them against uh, veiled voting, uh, against the kneecap. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, ironically, was sitting there talking about how women shouldn't be afraid to wear a hijab in public or walk out their front door, which they are in Quebec because of that law. So I... You know, uh, not a not a great day if you if you do remember that there is this Bill Twenty One sitting out there. And I've read the explanation. Uh, you know, but you know, it's it's all religious articles. We get that, uh, but I don't know that there are too many complaints about uh, about people wearing crucifixes. It, this this is really this is the son of the uh, the attempted legislation some years before. Really, really wasn't Susan to ban jobs? Uh, you, right. know, you couldn't vote. You couldn't do anything else. They that that didn't go very far. So now they just figured, okay, let's let's rework this. A little wordsmithing, please. And and this is the result of it. That's right. They sort of you know included everybody in it. To call it secularism, but but we know we know the roots of this, and um, you know it's unfortunate. But but this is this is the kind of thing that results in um, you know I'm going to be really careful about drawing a straight line between legislated bigotry and a hate crime. But um, there is a line there, it's at least a dotted one, and. And I, I do not think, I'm just old-fashioned, I don't think it's the government's job to whip up hate against um, or, or discrimination against one, uh, uh, one minority in Canada. There was an interesting development last night. Oran Gabra, the transport minister, who has taken a lot of flack for being Muslim, uh, you know, sometimes quasi uh, called a, a terrorist by by some critics. Um, Omar Al-Gabra was on TV last night saying he called Bill 21 state-sponsored discrimination. And I thought that was pretty strong, and it might be nice to uh, to hear more ministers in, in Trudeau's government, or dare I say the Prime Minister himself, using those words. Well, and as you point out... <laughs> Uh, you know, timing is everything in situations like this, and all of these leaders and all the politicians you've just referenced here have all spent a good deal of time over the last two weeks decrying past politicians, of course, for turning their backs on the residential school situation. I mean, this is not a new problem. We knew this existed for generations, uh, and, and previous governments did nothing, in, little right. to nothing anyway, about this. Uh, and, they, and they were justified in, in, in vilifying those past governments. You're right. You should not turn your back on that. Well, here's an opportunity. It's a moment. It's a a moment in the present. You know, that um, I I wrote in the piece, imagine if John A. MacDonald had said, uh, somewhat similar to what uh, the Prime Minister said yesterday, we're watching the situation at residential schools carefully, and I'm hoping Canadians have conversations about it. We'd say, uh, if you could go back in time, Sir John A., why wouldn't you say something stronger? And I, I, you know... I wonder if a day is going to come when somebody's going to have to apologize for Bill 21 the way we're seeing apologies now. Well, to, I think, put a, a, an exclamation point on this, you also included uh, some comments from uh, one Jeff Bennett uh, in the piece today. Uh, and I referenced that earlier today because the point it just jumped out at me, Susan. Uh, Bennett, of what course, a, ran for the PCs in 2014. Yeah, yeah talk to, explain that to our listeners because I think it really underscores just where we are here. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should say I lived five years in London, Ontario, too. I feel very fondly toward that city. And um, uh, Jeff Bennett, uh, who ran for provincially for the, the Progressive Conservatives in 2014, he talked about the fact that he had come in as a candidate uh, after a, a, a man with a Muslim name. And he went around talking to conservatives who were saying, thank goodness we now have somebody running for us who's English and white. And I couldn't, I hated going to the constituency office to volunteer because it felt like the Middle East. And he wrote this brutal assessment of what he heard from ordinary Londoners running as the PC candidate after there had been a Muslim candidate. And uh, he said, that's the racism. This, this, he said he was sick of hearing that this doesn't happen in cities like London. He said, it does, and I heard it, and I wish I'd called it out. And I, I put on Twitter, I think it's the most honest political statement I've heard in my life. You know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is somebody, but he's not running for election, is he? 
anymore um, who's willing to sort of tell voters the hard truths about themselves. As well as, you know, we see politicians sometimes being candid and self-deprecating about themselves, but they won't tell the voters when they're going wrong either. You know, that, that democracy isn't a store. The customer isn't always right. And um, I, 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 was, um, I was quite pleased to see Mr. Bennett um, speaking up the way he did. I think he got a lot of attention for that. I think he did too, because, like you say, it's it's it's. I don't want to use uh, invoking the spirit of Howard Cosell, but telling it like it is, yeah. uh, which is which we need to hear an awful lot more of. I mean, earlier in the program, I had Javed Mirza, the uh, president of the Muslim Association, here. He was a, a candidate years ago in an election. He told me that's st- a very similar story, uh, going door to door, and basically, people he ran as a liberal candidate. Uh, he was told from a number of the volunteers that said, "Well, I I can't work for you uh, because of your fact that you're a Muslim," uh, and they were quite frank about that and you figured geez you know there's no racism here which is why i get so frustrated uh, and i understand the prime minister getting vilified for you know the, the, the a racist country and the opposition parties jump all over that uh and Aaron O'Toole saying no we're not but when you see examples like this susan i'm not suggesting everybody in canada is racist but it it's here and it's it's it may be latent in some neighborhoods and in some communities but it's still here and i don't know that the elected leaders here even want to acknowledge that yeah, we have to, you know, politicians and we as people have to be willing to call it out when we hear it. You know, there's, you know, we've heard this throughout other things, through the Me Too thing. There's, an, there's an, a big tendency in all of us to want to be a good sport and not to, you know, um, not to wreck the mood and not to insult people. But I think the onus is on people who now would say sort of this, this casually racist, Stuff, that that's got to stop and I thought that was the purpose of, of Mr. Bennett's post and uh, I think it would be good if politicians would not just call out each other for racism but call it out when uh, they see it among the voters too it's hard you want those people's votes but uh, but that's the only way it's going to stop and it did I mean you use the example of the uh, the barbaric uh cultural practices hotline that was being proposed by uh, Kelly Leach and others in the Conservative Party in that election. And there were those of us in the media that, that called them out for that. And, and I can tell you, I got a lot of pushback, a lot of negative feedback uh, on social media from far right wing groups and, and everything else. And I figured, well, I'm not running for office, so I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm getting some mail today myself. But... I'm sure you are. Yeah, yeah. And good on and good on you for that. I mean, because you, know, you have to take a stand. You want to see that from our elected leaders, too. And I know Danville well, as you're asking rather rhetorically, why don't they do this? Because there's going to be an election in the next couple of months, and Quebec is, is going to be one of the main battlegrounds, and you don't want to piss off any voters there. That's really what it comes down to. Basically, yep. Yeah. Uh, kudos for saying piss off, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's literary license, I guess. Well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I do think, I, I you know... Um, Everybody hates panderers, but and that that is sort of the art of politicking as well too. But pandering on something as important as this is 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 really no more. And again, you know, um, the links between casual racism and the kind of thing we saw in London, um, they're there, um, but um, they need not be. The, the question here is whether it's something you post on social media, whether it's some, some meme that you think might be on the borderline, or whether it's a piece of legislation like Bill 21. Is there ever any discussion, Susan, about how is this going to impact or how is this going to be perceived by people like Alexander B. Sinet or, or this individual in London or others who take this to mean, yeah, they're, they're different, they're not as good, as, and, and all of a sudden it foments this anger and this hatred. Uh, and it's not everybody going to react that way, but even if one or two people do, what we saw in London is the result of that. Yeah, I, I, um, I remember back in 2017 when uh, there was an anti-Islamophobia motion before the House of Commons and I watched a rally. Uh, I could watch, I watched a tape, a videotape of a rally in Toronto, where a thousand people were there, and the things that were being said in that room were shocking. And several conservative leadership candidates showed up at that rally and spoke to that that audience. And this was my question at the time too: is yeah, maybe 
uh, 80% of the people in that room uh, are not going to go out tomorrow and commit violent acts. But there was pretty violent talk in that room and and just nodding at it and smiling at it. I thought, you know, I, I hope there's some soul searching going on today from... Um, from that debate in 2017, because a lot of what happened then was not pretty. You talked about the uh, the motion in the House a little while ago, to basically condemning Islamophobia. Uh, it did not pass unanimously. Uh, not surprisingly, I suppose. I don't think they could anything unanimous in this particular parliament. If they said, you know, it's this Wednesday, it'd be a split vote. But but none, nonetheless, a lot of the Conservative caucus, most of the Conservative caucus, as I understand it, Susan, voted against it. I mean. <laughs> Uh, I, what's what's the mindset here? And, and we just talked about pandering to Quebec voters. You know darn well that there's a right-wing element to that party, and there's a right-wing element in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, that would decry something like that, and you don't want to re- cause any ripple effects with any of these voters right now. It's, it comes down, as you mentioned in the piece, to political courage, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. And, I, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, again, not being not only being willing to to be courageous yourself, but to ask voters to be, to have a little bit of courage as well, too. You and I both went to school. These are the politicians we remember, the ones who, who went against the prevailing current, the ones who actually stood up and said things that were difficult to hear to people. That's, uh, you know, that's why people liked Pierre Trudeau, and many people in the country did. That's why, uh, that's why he is remembered, is because he said things that were unpopular in his own province. Um, I, I, you know, I think uh, these guys want to be remembered well by history. Uh, maybe it's time to sort of say unpopular things. Well, and, but, you know, don't be outrageous for the sake of being outrageous. Be outrageous because you think this is the right thing to do. That's right. and, and, yeah. and that has to be the mindset. And you're right. I mean, our, our, our history books are, are, you know, peppered with the people that stood out. Uh, and said things that, you know, were maybe not, I don't mean politically incorrect, but I mean things that needed to be said. Uh, and don't worry about, you know, somebody saying, well, gee, that's that's kind of, you know, making me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. As I said on the program yesterday, says, and the only way we exact change in this country is to make people feel uncomfortable. That, that exactly. seems to be the motivator. So where are the leaders that are willing to do that? That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, politicians all decry the fact they're not trained SEALs. They didn't come to Ottawa just to be... Um, you know, just to be actors in a script, but um, it sure sounded a lot like a script yesterday when uh, when they wouldn't. Think, again, the elephant in the room was Bill Twenty One. And and as you say, when you juxtapose that against their outrage against uh, the the residential school situation, it really it's a head scratcher. Susan, it's, it's a, a great month. piece. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it, listen, if you wanted to engender a debate about this and, and, and be the catalyst for it, you've certainly accomplished that. And, and I think you got a, a few people ticked off, too, and that's good for you, too. Uh, really enjoyed the uh, the article, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much yeah, for spending too. some time thank with you. us, Susan. Take care. Yeah, okay, thanks. Susan Delacord, national columnist with the Toronto Star. You can still see uh, the pieces online, by the way. Uh, Law and Justin Trudeau won't cross when it comes to fighting Islamophobia. And for that matter, not too many other federal politicians seem to want to go down that road either, do they? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.